Anchored in Reaching is for curious people who want to explore the story that God is writing in history and who are looking for their own place in that story to find meaning and vibrancy in their life and vocation. I'm Kevin Manoya. Join me each week as we probe the edges of faith and living, always in relation to God who knows you best. For some, it'll be an opportunity to anchor yourself more securely in your faith. For others, it'll be motivation to reach out to engage more broadly. In either case, these conversations should encourage, enlighten, and challenge you. What a wonderful day to be able to be in the church and to be able to serve the kingdom of God on earth. And I'm really glad that you're interested enough in that to be able to join us when Anchored in Reaching. You know that we're in a series, this wonderful, exciting series that we're calling The Diversity of Unity. And I hope that if you haven't listened to the previous episodes, that you go back and listen to those because the introduction to this series, The Diversity of Unity, is all about how God transforms the world through a diversity of streams in the life of the church, but we're all on the same mission and we're all bringing life wherever we go. We've had an opportunity to learn from a surgeon about how the church resembles the vascular system of the human body, and we get a chance to talk to some wonderful key leaders from a variety of those streams that I've described And uh, today we have a wonderful opportunity to talk to another of those, and I hope you listen well, and I hope that you take some notes and uh, open your heart and your mind to the learning that we get in these opportunities to learn from key leaders of the church across the the country and across the world. I want to remind you that if you want to communicate with us, drop us a note at podcasts at anchoredandreaching.com. And uh, today, it's a privilege to have Bishop Todd Hunter of the Anglican Church in the U.S. with us. Uh, Todd, it's good to see your face again. Of course, not everybody can see your face, but I can. Yeah. And uh, it's good to hear your voice uh, from Nashville. Um, Thanks for joining us today, Todd. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. I was just trying to recall as I was coming on, if we first met ourselves in and around Southern California, or did we first meet when we were working with the NAE? Well, I think you were in Southern California. I think you were uh, just becoming the president of the Vineyard right. Movement yeah. at the time, and I was president of the National so Association of Evangelicals. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to convince you and the Vineyard to become part of the NAE, yeah. and um, well, you, it, did. you didn't need much convincing. I, I don't remember how many lunches I made you take me to, but you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe that was the ulterior motive, but man, it was a joy. Yeah. And uh, I am just, I learned so much every time I talk to you, Todd. Well, and thank you. Likewise. That's why I'm so excited about having you on here and, and the journey that you've been on. Yeah. So you are now. You're no longer uh, president of the Vineyard, mm-hmm. but now you're with the Anglican Church. Right. So can you just describe that a little bit and your yeah, role? Yeah, it's, it's not as fun or sexy of a story as people think it is. It was really just kind of an out-of-the-blue calling. I mean, you know, Kevin, because you knew the Vineyard and you knew John Wimber, but there's a sense in which the Vineyard movement is not the Vineyard movement without the Church of England. It's the Church of England uh, that put John on the map, and... Mm. Um, John had an enormous influence on the Church of England and then kind of just following the old Commonwealth in, you know, South Africa and um, uh, New Zealand and Australia, Hong Kong, et cetera. So the Vineyard Movement really spread around the world chiefly because of John's contacts with people in the Church of England. 
of course, as a very young convert in Calvary Chapel in the 70s, I'm sure two of the first books ever put in my hands were from um, uh, Jim Packer and John Stott. And then, you know, early on, I discovered people like Leslie Newbigin and later met more my generation of guys like Nikki Gumbel, et cetera, Alpha, Holy Trinity, Brompton, and uh, Tom Wright and others. And so I've always had this affection for what I would now call um, evangelical Anglicans who are, you know, somewhat charismatic, missional, you know. And so there's a real tribe of people like that in the Church of England. Well, I never thought about joining that tribe. I wasn't hungry for sacrament or liturgy or something. It was a total out of the blue calling where a group in America asked me if I could help them make more kingdom-like, spirit-filled Anglican churches on the West Coast. And I thought, Kevin, I was getting a consulting job. I had no idea I'd ever become an Anglican, much less an Anglican (laughs) bishop. But I tell the first part of that story to say that it fit because I've always had such respect for the, you know, the evangelical charismatics in the Church of England. They just seemed, sure. I, obviously we know they're not, but they almost seemed like perfect Christians to me. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been a good fit. I love the vineyard. I still serve the vineyard in various ways, but so it wasn't a knock on the vineyard or Calvary Chapel or anything. It was just a surprising out of the blue calling. So that, so is you kind of where, where consultants go for their next stage, they move from consultant to bishop, yeah. right? Is, yeah, I, mean, I is guess that kind so. Of <laughs> the natural progression yeah, of affairs. Right. <clears throat> yeah, well, if for anybody who's been, for even just to, to discover Alpha, I mean, anybody who's been to Holy Trinity, Brompton, I mean, you, you can't walk out of there without being changed. Yeah. You, you know, it's just such an amazing influence of God in this convergence Mm -hmm. of historic faith and liturgy and yet the power of the and relevance of the spirit Mm -hmm. today. So I think that's what I'm hearing you say is that that just sort of seemed to make sense. Mm -hmm. I guess I didn't realize the history of the Vineyard Church was so closely tied to the Church of England though. And I have a hunch that as we get into this, um, that is true of many of these denominations. I mean, even my own denomination, mm-hmm. the Free Methodist Church, as I mentioned to you before, the Articles of Religion of the Free Methodist Church are built on the 39 Articles of the Church of England. Right. And uh, and incidentally, let me just clarify this, that for any of you who are not sure, what, why do we talk about the Church of England, Anglican? Well, you know, Anglican, the Anglican Church is is the Church of England, right. and um, they're, they're synonymous. So these are not two different groups. Right, yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah, and um, would it be fair to say, Todd, that in the, in the North American context, when the Church of England came to the United States, it actually took the form of the Episcopal Church. Correct, and then later, of course, the various Methodist yeah. branches. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So now... Why this this reference to Anglican yeah. as opposed to Episcopal? Uh, that might help. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you said that. I was going to say some of our listeners are going to be wondering what about Episcopalians. Yep. So as as you know, Kevin, and probably lots of your listeners, because you've been thinking about the main lines, um, as happened to Presbyterians and Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists and everybody else. There's been a divide that's been happening, I I would guess, at least since the 60s, so 60, 70 years of Mm -hmm. this divide over what's typically called liberal or conservative theology. And over the years, the markers of what's liberal or the markers of what's conservative change, but the basic categories haven't. So the simplest way to put it 
would be that the Anglican Church in North America would be the conservative branch of the Church of England and America, and the Episcopal Church, again, loosely put, would be the more liberal branch. But you know how this goes. All this exists on a continuum. And there are certainly people in the Episcopal Church who are true believers and true true followers of Jesus. Right. Well, and the constructs and tags we put on people are sometimes very unfair. Yes. And that's that's partially what this whole series is about, Uh is that we have put tags on people. We've called, you know, we've said they're Catholic, they're Orthodox, they're they're Anglican, they're Episcopal, they're Methodist, Mm -hmm. Presbyterian, or they're Pentecostal or whatever. And then we draw conclusions about Mm -hmm. those people. And part of what we're trying to do here is create a little bit more permeability and understanding that one stream is different but not better than, and we bring this water of God's transforming salvation to the world. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So is it true then? I mean, I think when people travel overseas, they see Anglican churches, but do they see many Episcopalian churches or is that limited to the North American church and the Anglican church? Actually, it's limited to America, to my knowledge, not even Canada. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a distinctly yeah. American term. Yeah. So it probably developed maybe when the Church of England came to the U.S. and the Americans mm-hmm. who were liberated for you know yes. independent from England right. said we don't want to use that word. Yeah. So we're going to name it something else. It's definitely a frontier America issue. Yeah. 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 So so let me ask you this. I mean, um, we've talked to people and we will talk to people from a variety of these different streams and and in part. You represent the mainline mm-hmm. churches in the country and in the world. Right. I mean, the Anglican Church is a mainline church. Yep. And a lot of people have sort of relegated the mainline denominations, particularly the mainline Protestant denominations, to being irrelevant, mm-hmm. out of touch, old school, and there's no real life in them. Yeah. I mean, you know, talk to us about that. And, and um, why do people say that? First of all, mm-hmm. and, and and obviously, I mean, I know the answer to this question. Is it true? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think the answer to that is obvious, or you wouldn't be you wouldn't be a bishop in the Anglican mm-hmm. Church. But but unpack that a little bit. Why do people sort of relegate this to a dead dead institutional past? Yeah. Well, you'll know, Kevin, because this has been our our life and our ministry career. It's not said for no reason. It, in other words, it's not completely untrue meaning the demographics show that of the shrinkage of the church, again, from, let's say, the 1960s to today, and that's massive shrinkage. I don't know if you've seen the new book, The, the Great De-Churching. If, if not, you, you will, you'll want to get mm-hmm. it, knowing you. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. shows that like 40 million people have left the church in the last generation or so. Well, the statistics are clear that the the vast majority of them were from the mainline church, because simultaneous to that, as you know, the church growth movement was happening, and then the seeker movement, and those sorts of things where um, big box megachurches were growing simultaneous to the mainline shrinking. So we can't deny the shrinkage, and I don't think we can deny that there was often uh, a biblical unfaithfulness in the liberal parts of the mainline church. But I think the point you're trying to make is mainline churches are still full of millions of godly people who Mm -hmm. love God and love their neighbor and are trying to love their enemies and care about injustice and care about migrants and their their beautiful souls. And 
uh, in one of my books, um, maybe it was what Jesus intended. I tell this story, Kevin, when I was a little boy, I grew up in the United first United Methodist church, Santa Ana, California. Mm -hmm. And it was stereotypically liberal in that kind of 1960 sense where I remember the rector had a degree in philosophy, not in theology. And he was, you know, typically liberal, but I'm telling you that church, the people in that church were really godly. I watched them minister uh. to my mom in all of her troubles in these very quiet, humble, godly ways. And I think something like that is still true today that, I mean, yeah, I just spoke at a United Methodist church uh, in the Midwest um, a week or so ago and thousands of, you could tell, just really humble, godly people. Yeah. And yet many people probably more so in the evangelical um, tradition or in that pattern of thinking, tend to draw a, a, a boundary yes. and say, if you are in a mainline Protestant denomination, if you are in the Anglican church, then you must not be very spiritual. Yeah. Well, again, I don't, I don't think that's said for no reason. Again, if you think of the work that we've seen over our lifetime, Kevin, from Pugh and Lily and Gallup and Barna and all that, normally... The, the things that people like that measure for like evangelical sensibilities do tend to exist more in the mainline evangelical churches and not so much in the old school mainline churches. But again, it's not, it's a little bit unfair. And we just have to remember that the Church of England or the Anglican stream should not be noted by the most liberal aspects of us. Why aren't we noted by C.S. Lewis? And right. Jim Packer and John Stott and Leslie Newby yeah. and Tom Wright and on and on and on. There are just so many luminaries yeah, of yeah. the 20th century who are Anglican. Yeah, yeah. Now let me go back and just just so that people who are listening know, because you've used his name twice, Tom Wright, a dear man, a bishop in the Anglican right. church. Uh, most people know him as N.T. Wright. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make sure everybody's Sorry making that connection. Sorry about that. No, yeah. no, that's all right because you read books yeah. and and you know you see the initials and he, all of a sudden you decide okay his first name must be N T. Yeah, right. I think it's Nicholas Tom <laughs> and he just goes by Tom. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, and an amazing man whose heart is just so wonderfully for God. Yeah. And, and, and again, people like you and people like you've just mentioned, they sort of punch holes in this preconceived idea that there is this shroud of separation. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, Todd, I, I wonder if, you know, if you would resonate with this, that there is an amazing resurgence among a new generation of young people seeking God to find meaning in the historic churches yes. like the Anglican yeah. Church because of the liturgies, because of that ancient mm -hmm. connection. Yeah. I mean, are you finding that? And if so, what are the key points of that connection? I do. I personally see it every day, or almost every day, and, and I'm aware of the sociology that would say that there is pretty big moves towards Catholicism, Orthodoxy, and Anglicanism, uh, you know, mm -hmm. depending on, you know, where somebody's coming from. So yes, Kevin, I sometimes call this the long tail of Robert Weber. So if some of your listeners don't remember Bob Weber, uh, he wrote that famous book, uh, shoot, something on the, Can on the Canterbury Trail, was it just called that? Or was it Seekers on the Canterbury Trail or something like that? where mm -hmm. Bob Weber was the first one really to notice this like 30 or 40 years ago, and that mm. there was a growing hunger, as you say, amongst Christians who were 
beginning to struggle with the church growth movement or the mega church movement or whatever, or the sort of, you know, uber contemporary churches, and we're looking for something more grounded, more historical, et cetera. Now, as you know, there's also tons of churches that would be in between that. I mean, those are, I'm I'm caricaturing here just for the sake of time, but there's lots of churches that are really evangelical feeling, but have bits of liturgy or churches that are really liturgical, but have bits of contemporary worship. So there's a, there's a whole spectrum now. But the short answer to your question is, yes, there is a movement. I'm not enough of a sociologist to know to quantify it, but let's just say it's noticeable to people who work in my space and to sociologists. Yeah. So often what I find when I work with young people, younger leaders who are curious and I love, you know, I encourage curiosity Mm -hmm. and faith is they go on this journey of deconstructing their faith that has been built by often uh, a very narrow kind of band of thinking. Mm-hmm. And when they deconstruct their faith, they wind up discovering the Anglican Church, mm-hmm. the Catholic Church, yeah. and they realize the vibrancy that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is something that comes through historic churches like the Anglican Church uh, that is vibrant. How? How do um, how does the Anglican Church then look back at some of those more contemporary upstart, you know, adolescent kind of churches that are think they're all that in a bag of chips, mm-hmm. so to speak, and they just you know what I'm saying? And 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 it, it's almost like watching your four or five year old, or or maybe your early adolescent, twelve or thirteen year old, who thinks they're the center of the universe. And sort of wisely standing back and saying they'll discover soon enough that there are bigger yeah. issues than just their their drummer. Yeah, I think in the Anglican world that I've become aware of over the last fifteen years, and so that gives me a certain kind of observation. But I certainly wouldn't claim mm-hmm. perfect observation. There would be Anglicans who are very much like Holy Trinity Brompton, where you know that's a historic Christian. Uh, as a historic church building in the center of London. But man, once you walk through the doors of this obviously historic building, it doesn't look much at all like a typical Anglican service. And there's a whole stream of Holy Trinity Brompton-like churches all over the whole world, uh, including in my own diocese, Vintage Church in uh, West LA is a really large church of, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000 people or something that would be very much like Holy Trinity Brompton. And then in my diocese, we have churches that would look very, um, you might call standard or typically Mm -hmm. liturgical, where there's uh, the whole liturgical service would be done. But you know what I think I'm noticing, Kevin? It's not so much the amount of liturgy that's done that feels differentiating to me. I think it's more the difference between formality mm, mm. And, um, and then I don't know what the other word is, more casual, more informal. In other words, you can do liturgy that feels like, you know, sometimes you hear the word like high mass and it feels mm-hmm. so careful, so structured that sometimes it doesn't feel warm or welcoming. Now, all this again is it's just because we're a short podcast. I can't get into the whole thing. Yeah. And then you have other yeah. settings where the liturgy is basically done, but it's done in what Cramner would say, the language of the people. For him, that meant English. Yeah. Sorry, Cramner was the founder of the Church of England, yeah. um, the mm-hmm. reformer, Thomas Cramner. And so, you know, he made this big bet on English and put the prayer book in the language of the people. Well, today, when I say put the language of the people, I mean more the idioms of 2023, 
not the mm-hmm. idioms mm-hmm. of 500 years ago when the prayer book was written. So I think a big part of what people feel is, um, can I engage in this structured liturgy, but just feel that word structured, but can I do it in a warm, welcoming, winsome way? And that's what I think I'm struggling to call informal or something. Yeah. So I would say the best, most fruitful growing aspects of present-day Anglicanism in America that I can see thread that needle yeah. of yeah. that kind of st- historic structure you're talking about, but in an engaging way. Yeah, that's really, I really appreciate that. That's extremely helpful. And in fact, I guess I would say that every church has a liturgy. Of course, yeah. The question is, you know, I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, whether you go to the most Pentecostal church down the street or you go to the Calvary Chapel or you mm-hmm. go to the Vineyard or wherever, you, or the independent, the megachurch, mm-hmm. they all have oh, liturgy. Yeah, no doubt. You know, they don't call it that mm-hmm. because they eskew the kind of, you know, high church right. liturgy, and they think that they're more spiritual because they associate it with a style of worship. But let me let me turn a corner yep. here and go a little deeper. Beyond the stylistic differences, uh, can you help us understand a little bit more? Because you've seen this real life mm-hmm. coming from the vineyard. I think you had a you had a pause for a moment in the Calvary Chapel movement, mm-hmm. the kind of upstart yep. um, upstart churches, the the influence. Uh, spiritually and theologically of the Anglican Church in many of these ways, the, the, how the Anglican Church has affected every other stream yeah. that that people are listening come from. Yeah. Oh, it's right? it's massive. If you go to a wedding that feels in any way traditional, that's Anglican, and no one no one knows that, but that's that's Anglican <laughs> liturgy. So much of uh, Anglican norms, which. Uh, I'm going to forget who it was now, so I apologize to the Anglicans listening. But it was one of the great uh, Anglican archbishops who said, there really is no such thing as Anglicanism. All there is is just basic Christianity. And Anglicanism at its best, that's what it's self-conscious of. We're We're not trying to make Anglicans. We're not trying to force people to use the prayer book. We're trying to make followers of Jesus and simply saying, hey, the prayer book is a pretty decent way of having a robust Sunday diet that would help you be a follower of Jesus if that's what you want to do. But if somebody doesn't intend to be a follower of Jesus, well, then confessing your sins on Sunday morning is just rote. It's just words mm-hmm. or saying the mm-hmm. creed. If, if you don't intend to make the Nicene or the Apostle Creed the outline of what it means to be human in the image of God, if you don't intend it to make it your story, well, yeah, you are just repeating words. But as soon as you want to be a follower of Jesus and be a, like a missionary in the world, uh, all of a sudden, the prayer book bursts with amazing, fruitful ideas. Amazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that prayer book has become the framework for increasing numbers of churches mm-hmm. who probably would never identify with the Anglican Church and probably may not even know that it that it has oh, roots yeah. in the Anglican yeah. Church. I, again, I have so many people who talk to me, again, almost every day, who are in the mainstream evangelical world, often independent, sometimes in EB Free or something like that, who, yeah, they're borrowing from the prayer book all the time. They don't tell anybody because mm-hmm. they know they fear it'll get them in a little trouble. But but they're they're doing it. They're borrowing for the prayer book. Yeah. So so why do you think they would they would feel like they they would get in a little trouble? Because as you said. Um, liturgy is rote. Liturgy is dead. Liturgy is legalistic. Liturgy is Catholic. And, you know, God, that's the last thing you want to be if you're a Protestant, right? <laughs> so it, it has this sort of imaginary thing. It has imaginary things that are attached to it, that if if you don't understand, you really don't understand. I, I remember a girl saying to me once, a college girl, 
and like with real sincerity, she wasn't being a smart aleck. She said, Todd, I just don't understand. Why would I want to pray using someone else's words? Like that feels mm. insincere to me. Wouldn't I want to pray from my heart? And I said, okay, try praying words that you haven't learned from someone else. Like right now, just try praying in a way that is completely spontaneous. It's not in any way connected to any of your history, et cetera, et cetera. And of mm -hmm. course, light bulbs went on for both of us in that moment that you can't. None of us are praying mm -hmm. our own words in that sense. We're all mm -hmm. praying based on rhythms and habits of thinking that have been handed down to us for 2,000 years. Now, I don't mean to say that there isn't spontaneous prayer. Of course there is. My point was that if I pray the Lord's Prayer, I can say the words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, or I can mean, my Father in heaven, may your righteous rule and reign come into my life today. And Kevin, I literally pray that prayer every day, but I don't pray it as the Lord's Prayer as a part of the prayer book. I pray it as, mm -hmm. God, my whole life identity is to be an ambassador of your kingdom. So let your rule and reign come in my day today. Before I got mm -hmm. to work this morning, I prayed for this moment. Mm -hmm. Like, Lord, and before we got on the podcast, I prayed. And Lord, let... Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying is those little liturgical bits can actually become like little engines in our spiritual life. Even a tiny little mm. bit of liturgy like the Lord's Prayer. Mm. I love that. I love that, Todd. I, you know, I confess that I prayed for this time as well. And I began the day, I am your servant. Yeah. This is your kingdom. Use me as you wish. Right. So, so and Kevin, sorry the, to interrupt. Yeah. Those, were, those no, words no. felt spontaneous to you, right? Absolutely. But if you think about them for a minute, those are words that were, have been handed down to us. Absolutely. Generation after generation. Servant is not your eyes idea, right? Nope. Yeah. Nope, not at all. Yeah. And 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 frankly, my mind goes back to Mary. Yes, you absolutely. Know, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be with me as you choice. My favorite Advent sentence. Absolutely. Yeah, but then you you know well we're going to get into a whole other. But you contrast that with how Zachariah responded. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And here you've got this 15, 16 year old girl. I am a servant of the Lord. May it be with me as you choose. Wow. And you know going back to what you said about and and we're going to wrap this up here in a minute. But um, you know the Anglican Church is trying to help people in their walk with Christ. Yes as Christians. Absolutely. You know, um, a guy that I tend to like and and have leaned on heavily made the statement that we are about classic Christianity. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. John John Wesley yeah. used that term mm -hmm. a couple of times. This is about classic Christianity without attempting to claim superiority mm -hmm. because of an emphasis that we may have exactly. or a style that yes. we may possess. Yes. Um, if your hand be, if your heart be as my heart, give me your hand and let us journey together. Yeah. Of course, he was quoting out of the scripture when he talked about that, but that is the essence of unity. Yeah, right, you're right, Kevin. And I know because Reckon, I've known you, mm -hmm. I know that's been your so much a part of your adult life. <laughs> but you're right. I just want to say I've never once woke up on a morning thinking I was superior to Lutherans or Presbyterians or. Methodist. I'm a huge fan of Wesley. In my mind, we still get to count him. <laughs> we, we still get to count him as an Anglican. But you you well, hear my point. I, I, I never Absolutely. wake up thinking that somehow Anglicans are superior to independent Pentecostals or anything like that. That would just seem silly to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess I pray that because of this series and this this particular episode, 
there will be a lot of people who might have some light bulbs going off in their mm-hmm. minds like you experienced with that young college girl. Yeah. The lights go on and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm being a little too sectarian here. Maybe I'm being a little too exclusive here. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm excluding people who don't think like me. And I told somebody, I think uh, on one of our previous podcasts, most of the Spears that I have received are in my back mm-hmm. from people within the church who say Kevin is not thinking the way we think yeah. and therefore we're going to, you right. know, and you, that's true of you too, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. wow. Well, well thank I, you, I can sense here that, yeah, I we're going to need to uh, at some point in the future get you back on, Todd, and just unpack okay. this whole idea of, of the Anglican church, its influence in the larger church. Uh, this is awesome. Now, I, if I'm not mistaken, you've got a podcast as well, and uh, you know there I may do. be I have people. Two podcasts. Or... One they could find, um, and you could probably put it in the show notes is uh, my diocese, yeah. which is churches for the sake of others, um, and then I have a podcast for my center called the Center for Formation, Justice, and Peace, mm-hmm. and then um, and then my newest book uh, at InterVarsity Press is called What Jesus Intended. And I almost said something when you're talking about those who are deconstructing their faith, because that's who I wrote this book for, Kevin, is those people who are just really really struggling, honestly, in their heart and mind with their faith. And so this book is meant to gain a fresh hearing for Jesus around the aims of Jesus. And and it's written uh, to, it's like my love letter to people who are struggling with deconstruction issues. Oh my goodness, that sounds like a wonderful read, and I hope that folks will pick that up. We'll make sure we get that in the show notes so that people can figure out how to get that. And uh, I'm hopeful, as you listen to this podcast, this particular episode, that when you are driving by an Anglican church, that you will think about stopping and getting to know uh, what happens in that place among people who are gathered to worship God and bring the kingdom on earth. So um, I hope this has been helpful for you. Todd, it's a joy to have you. Thank you for taking yeah, time. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. And look look forward to seeing you again. And uh, for those of you who are listening, let the Holy Spirit take these words and seal them to your heart and open your vision and your mind and see the amazing diversity of God's unity through the life of the church. God bless you. Let me encourage you to keep leaning into the wonderful adventure of becoming all that God has envisioned for you to be. Anchoring yourself in a secure identity, you reach with confidence to engage with people and daily life all around you. Allow your curiosity to explore and find God in the edges. Please take time to share this podcast with all your friends and invite them to join me in upcoming weeks as we explore together this exhilarating journey of being anchored and reaching.